After all this, you still... I still want that gas, yes. And you had better deliver. Hey everybody, welcome back to the greenhouse. We've got a full staff on board today for a long overdue current affairs episode. Yes, we are back with the segment that pays the bills. Joining me today are my co-hosts, Josh and John. How's everyone doing? Could be better. It's recovering from some psychic damage, as it were. But uh, <laughs> oh no, I, I think you know. I, you know, I, I'm doing pretty great actually. But you know, the exaggeration aside, I'm doing pretty great. I think because I missed out on what happened today, I'm probably doing better than most, right? Yeah, I'm feeling good um, because it's great to be back in the studio talking current events. We did miss a couple things uh, with our brief hiatus, so I just wanted to say something that's been long overdue. Everybody who did some climate denial over the Hawaii fires, I hope y'all cook. I I agree, but at the same time, it's so interesting watching conspiracy theory people like try to come up with something about the Hawaii wildfires. It's it's amazing. I love that. It's like the trees didn't burn. It's the type of tree that doesn't. Guys, guys. They well, do the thing where... Go ahead, go ahead. I was going to say that there is like an interesting little hook that we can bring this in with, which is um, there's a few... Um, these were vetoed bills on like trying to... Uh, they, there was these bills that were attempted to remove certain animals off of the endangered or extinction list. Um, and uh, they were vetoed, and there was efforts to overturn them today. They failed because, you know, they requires quite the threshold to uh, overturn it. But uh, one was like the like some prairie chicken, and then there was um, a bat. But it's just like it's interesting where you have this like weird emphasis on like just a strong uh, desire to like just not acknowledge like climate change or any like environmental. Yeah, the prairie chickens. Mm. Um, there was an effort to remove them off of the endangered list, um, which was weird because, like, the member who had proposed it was talking about, like, oh, we need less regulations, we need more rain. It's like, what, do you, like, sacrifice these particular chickens to your god to make the rain come? Like, what's the deal? Exactly. You can't have both. You just cannot have both. That's that's yeah. the law. Also, it's so, it's, like, I'm just going to have go on a bird tangent. It's very unfortunate they're called prairie chickens because that downplays how cool these fucking look. Yeah, I, I thought the same. <laughs> Yeah, and also like the the males have this weird like ball sack pouch on their necks. That yeah, specifically, it's it's this lesser one. There's the greater and there's the lesser uh, primary chicken. Yeah, and then there's like the greater sage grouse, which I think might live in the same area. If anyone's seen one of these, these are amazing. The males basically have titties that they inflate during mating season. What? <laughs> yeah, yeah, these are really weird looking. These are really cool. And like that's the thing is all these birds I think live in the areas that they want to do fracking in. Of course they do. That's exactly what it comes down to, nine times out of ten. Speaking <laughs> of speaking of policy, I have a question. Um I was I forgot where I read it, but I read somewhere that like one of the reasons why the fire was so devastating was because like the government didn't require the structure owners to have defensible space, which is like a, like a um, like an area of like greenery or like a nice area of land around the buildings to reduce like the spread of wildfires. I was wondering if that got changed or like if that was a a thing. Um, I'm curious too. I'm looking it up right now. Let's see. Cause like that was definitely one of the reasons why, like, because the wind would like spread it around it because there was there was either not enough space between the buildings. It would just like kind of spread and devastating. 
Yeah, there's um, I'm, I've, there's one article that's looking at it from a different angle on PBS. They talk about uh, it sounds like there were zoning changes um, in the aftermath of that. I don't know if they if they take into account those particular environmental concerns. I would hope they do, but who knows? But this one kind of talks about how it might re- result in uh, pricing out locals from their rebuilt towns. God damn this. It's it's fucked. Market prices for the new housing are likely to far exceed the already high prices that existed. You would think the prices would, if anything, go down after. That's you know, what I was gonna say. The yeah. whole place went up in flames. Like you know that you're like in like a high risk zone. I would think, but who knows? It's 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 a classic story of American amnesia where like people will see this event and then get on stage at the Republican debate and say. Joe Biden's woke green agenda it's uh, is to blame. Yeah, I mean, there's there's a lot to get into on that specifically. It was fun because, um, like, a lot one of their big, I'm not really fun, but you know, it's one of their this is the psychic damage. <laughs> one of their favorite contradictions is sort of emphasizing how, um, you know, we were energy independent, and you know, Biden is like, you know, moved off fossil fuels completely, and uh, like Gavin Newsom, I think, was on like. Hannity's little segment afterwards and was kind of talking about like that's just not true like you know oil production's at an all-time high and of course this is like sort of like a win for like I I don't know it's it's weird where it's like this policy it's like you know there's you know some value to energy independence but we want it to be you know in a much more sustainable way um, and obviously reduce climate impact as much as possible but it's just like it doesn't matter that like the policies that Republican want Republicans ostensibly want are what's being followed. It just doesn't matter to that voter demographic. Oh, dude, that I can I can speak on that. That's very true. Um, Trump recently went to the UAW picket line. I don't know if you guys um, at the same time as the debate. Yeah, at the exact same time of the debate. Well, and it wasn't quite the UAW picket line. No, it wasn't that, at all, actually. Like, it was... It was, it was in, a non-union shop. No UAW yeah. members were present. And throughout the whole speech that he gave, he's railing really hard on, um, like, the increase in production of electric vehicles, which um, UAW members don't not want. Like, they don't, like, UAW as the union is not against, like, electric vehicles. So it's, it's really goofy to really like rail on you on electric vehicles the way he did well, and he actually was also, like, railing against like the demands of the union too like i think you guys are on strike well he was he acted like he was talking to the union workers but he was like yeah. oh like the, you know you're striking for the wrong reasons a really just it's like i don't know how you can swing this in like a pro working class way but like the media has found a way to like do that and it's absolutely baffling yeah it's insane and, it's... and like you'll go ahead, go ahead uh, yeah, I was, I was bringing back to the electric vehicles thing. It's like the the production of electric vehicles ramping up is one of the kind of backbones of the union's demands, which is the four day work week. The the idea being that like you don't need as much labor to produce these electric vehicles, so why don't we all just work less and get paid the same? Which is kind of like the idea that like got the four day work week into the union's demand. So uh, just just talking about how Republicans have no idea what the you know, working class actually wants or is important to them at all. It's just wild. And it's not a radical demand for a four day work week. Like this, I've seen this come up in like Europe a lot during like recessions or during like weird economic periods where 
I think in Germany there's this I think the term French work week was being French thrown a lot refer to it yeah. in the debate. There is that, but then also like just in Germany, like during recessions, they have this thing called short work where like they'll just shorten the work week instead of paying out the full, you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. So it's not, I mean, I don't know. The concept of shortening the work week is not even radical, nor it nor is it new. But I think the idea of, oh my God, an American standard of living on four days of work, we can't have that. Yeah, and it's also, it's it goes back to kind of like, a choice we made as a, as a society right after the Second World War, right? Where, mm-hmm. um, you know, we had gone, you know, like into economic overdrive on like industrial production, all of this stuff to support the war effort. And then like when we got home, it's like, well, now what to be like, you know, relax things or do we create a surplus? And we opted to just create a surplus of things. And that sort of has been like sort of our maybe one of the most defining economic choices we've made in our history. Yeah. Something that we like, we still reel in in many ways. But I think to an earlier point you made, Josh, about this co-optation of the working class by the right, it's not a successful endeavor on their part. But you remember that like conservative country song and like all the backlash oh. like, that got. Yeah. Was it Richmond? Uh, yeah, the Richmond from Richmond, Richmond from type Richmond. shit. Yeah, and it's just like I think with Tucker Carlson types and like this, uh phenomenon of what we call right-wing populism right i think it it stems from one like there is beginning to be this articulation of working class sentiments and aspirations and all that um who claims this energy is still up for grabs although i think historically and by right it, it should be the left socialists have always advocated for this this should be channeled by them blah 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 but you know, the American right needs to co-opt it, one, because it is always threatened by labor, but two, they know that, like, this uh, quote-unquote stable middle class uh, doesn't always lean conservative. In fact, on the culture war, they're starting to lose them. So I feel like the strategy is, if we can peel off some union members who might be socially conservative on a couple issues, we could tap into some kind of imagined base. And that's just me doing vibes-based analysis. This is not grounded in any scholarly uh, research. But that seems to be the play, and I don't know if it's going to pay off. Because I, mean, I don't know so, if that kind of person votes. Yeah, and, and also, I don't know if that like, strategy is even working. Like, Don't get me wrong, there are some Trump supporters that are like right-wing and in the UAW. I've I've personally met some. It's the most yeah, wild we talked about ever. Last time too in our interview, right? But but ultimately the overall like the overall sentiment when I was on the picket line is like a very anti-Trump, very anti-right-wing sentiment. And even at, even when Trump was quote unquote at the picket, or I don't even know how to like say it. Like he wasn't at the picket, but like I don't know what to insert here. Um, when he was when he at was... an AstroTurf labor event, let's call it right. Yeah, let's, yeah, let's call when it what it is. Sure, forming. <laughs> <laughs> When he was there, he he mentioned um, he tried to push the the UAW members, even though the membership was very low at this event, to get Sean Fain to like give Trump an endorsement. Like yeah. that actually happened, which is crazy. And then at like Sean Fain just said no. Like it, like the the entire push from the right wing to try to get 
workers on their side is just ultimately failing. I don't think that's there's a classic be any... Trump mistake. That's like it a, really is. I read one headline that Sean Fain has held out on endorsing Biden. It was like, oh, I can I can get this guy. No, you didn't. right. He's like he's like I can fix him. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, I mean, I, 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 part of me is like, it's, is it even like, I mean, this is way too four D for like Trump to pull off, but is it like, oh, well, maybe he could create like this internal rebellion within the UAW where they get, you know, they actually replace the leadership with a more Trumpian style, uh, Trumpian supporting leader structure. I don't know. I mean, I wonder if like if in his mind he thinks that that's like even achievable. Which I, I don't know. Even then, I still don't know because it's like the the UAW just had like a semi big reform that just happened within like the internal politics of the UAW. Trying to like do that again so soon is just I don't know. That's laughable almost. This mm-hmm. is this is like the myopic tendency of the culture warrior and even among the culture warriors themselves, right? Where it's like I've I've seen this cherry picked a bunch of times where it's like. Well, culture war issues don't poll well among union members. I'm like, do does it work with anyone from the general population? Do you talk to anybody about like like I don't know? There's this like meme that gets repeated about like union members are going to see uh, blue hair pronouns and get you know like turned off by that. But it's like I I don't necessarily think that's indicative of anything. You know? Yeah. Yeah. Also, I I just don't think it's true. Like. I feel like a lot of um, union members are people who care a lot more about like where their next check is coming from, like how they're going to yeah. support their family exactly. more than the pronouns well, of some the working person, class you know? in general, whether you're in a union or not. Fair, yeah. Um, like you know, whether or not you necessarily even like believe in you know even like what unions are about, right? Most people are just concerned with their their personal well being. Um, I mean, right to work, even you know, kind of preys upon the idea that like you know you would be more capable of doing that you know it's 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 sort of filling you a, a bag of goods right that you're more capable of negotiating without the union than you would without and they're just trying to take your check but you know again it's sort of going after that same sentiment right it's like that you would be uh you know your paycheck will be inflated by you know not having to pay union dues things like that it's it's really just all tied to you know kind of the pocketbook speaking of which that event trump was at i think was f- sponsored by the national right to work foundation yeah mm-hmm. That explains everything. Once again. Not only that, but um, I don't know if you guys saw this, but there was, um, like, the media was there, and there were, like, I think, two or three different times where, like, uh, various news uh, stations would try to interview someone holding a sign saying, I'm an auto worker, or, like, yeah, you, union worker for Trump. Or... Yeah, and that happened a couple times, and when they talked to them, they're like, oh, yeah, I'm not really UAW, I'm not really the auto industry. Yeah. Yeah, the lesson we learned the hard way on the picket line is union members will not talk to you. Do not go to a union. Yeah, and say, that's Hi, true. I'm an independent journalist. I'd like to interview you. They will correctly say talk to the shop steward before then. <laughs> yep. Right. Oh, and like, I get it. It's just it's just the, you know, the way the media is reporting the entire situation. Like everyone's very hesitant to slip up. Uh, understandably or say so. Yeah, understandably. of course. Well, I've noticed that there is like a weird like there's some people who still are reporting it like incorrectly where they're like, oh, he went to the UAW pickets and stuff like that. And it's like, no, he didn't like. I, I don't I'm I'm shocked that like some journalists are able to get away with being that factually inaccurate. On that on that note, too, well, before we get into the Republican debate, what do we think of Biden's appearance on the picket line? 
Um, so I did talk to some um, guys in the UAW about it, and overall, uh, well, obviously my small sample size isn't enough to tell you how the UAW <laughs> feels, but from, from what I gather, um, a lot of the people there are not fans of Biden or Trump, um, but at the same time, they recognize that even though it is mostly based on aesthetics, they're glad he came just for the labor movement in general, because that's more than anyone else has really done. So that's kind of, that's kind of where I stand personally on it as well. Like I can, I can like kind of take a step back and go, okay, this, you know, does he actually care about labor? Eh, maybe, but like this is for aesthetics. But it ultimately, his, works. yeah, and and, <laughs> and ultimately, it shows that like there is power in labor, and that you know it does ultimately help the labor movement. Yeah, I mean that's kind of the sentiment I was picking up as well. I was watching a few interviews with some people as well, and I think some people kind of you know on top of that they emphasized how much attention this kind of draws to their cause. And whatnot, and I think that's that's just generally a good thing too. Um, I, I think there's 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 definitely some value there. Well, I mean, obviously for him politically, I mean that's kind of you know the angle that I you know more professionally study, right? But also I think for workers, they do get you know some benefit from having you know at least the appearance of solidarity, and it, it does sort of put a magnifying glass on the situation. That's that's about where I'm at too. I think like if he continues to show up at additional pickets and other union strikes, maybe you know he can spin this into something to fold unions back into the Biden vote for 2024. But let's let's see how that progresses. Is all I'm gonna sure, say. Yeah. Um. But speaking of people who did not make the right move for optics, let's get into last night's Republican debate. Um, <laughs> where, how do we want to do this? Do we want to go like candidate by candidate? Uh... So all I'm going to say is that everything I said about the last debate has somehow like stood true and collapsed all the same. I'm just going to let's just let's just start in the middle of this of this bullshit. Um. Vivek Ramaswamy really tried to play the unity ticket until he couldn't. That was baffling to me. Like, he was the, the... Out of the first debate, he came across as the most Trumpian, most, like, obnoxious person. And then he decided to, like, just start playing this unity card, right? He's like, oh, you know, Reagan's 11th commandment or whatever it is, you know, the thou shalt, you know, speak ill of a fellow Republican or whatever, because they were, they were of course, in the Reagan library. So, you know, hollowed ground right. um, for the for the cause, I guess. And it, um, it was like viewing demons in the 11th circle of hell. That's what that's what it felt <laughs> like looking at. Um, speaking of Vivek, I thought um, he really um seemed to grind Nick, uh, Nikki Haley's gears, especially, right? Like, she at one point said, like, every time he talks, she thinks she gets a bit dumber, which, you know, was probably the most relatable thing that was said all night. Um, but it, it struck me as really, like, it, it's interesting. She actually did write uh, a blurb for his uh, little website, or his uh, book. Yeah. Though <laughs> um, she also um, <laughs> has another relationship with someone else that is all, even maybe more interesting. But like it, what was weird was a big point of their contention, right? There was a little bit of the Ukraine divide again, but the big thing was like him wanting to use TikTok to appeal to younger voters, and she's just like, "No, we need to ban it. <laughs> like, don't outreach to younger voters. Ban everything they do. We don't like them." And it, it, it's just, 
it's fascinating, like, seeing, uh, especially her, I think she's, like, campaigning for a GOP candidacy in, like, at the most recent, like, 2002, right? Like, her her policy views just generally feel, like, completely out of touch with, like, kind of the, the modern scheme in general. But, like, this, particularly, like, this fascination or lack thereof of TikTok, and let's face it, right, like, Vivek is using it, but, like, he also decided to appear with perhaps the one person scummier than him on the face of the earth, Jake Paul. Right. Um, oh, no. So, which, which, by the way, Jake Paul also did a video with uh, RFK Jr. Oh, God. Of course. Just to did. let you know what kind of company he keeps. <laughs> Jesus Christ. Forgot he existed. Hate you for reminding I, me that. The, the, the TikTok <laughs> issue. The RFK TikTok or Jake issue. Paul? Yes. It, it, it requires you to be so highly online and like. I just don't think the boomer audience understood what the thing about TikTok is. Yeah, when I think like there was so much interrupting of each other in that debate that you really couldn't get um like any context behind anything. This felt super inside baseball. Um obviously like you know the other big, you know, sort of spat was between Nikki Haley and Tim Scott who she appointed to the Senate in the first place. Right. Um and they're like going at each other over all this like oppo research that just like he is attacking her over the freaking un curtains a story i completely forgot about in the early trump years um but there was that there was like you know oh a gas tax that was in place in south carolina probably still is like all of this stuff that was just like this is absolutely insane and like they keep talking over each other so you have no sense of context it just comes across like these people all hate each other um, and I, I mean, I guess, you know, you know, maybe not to let's like bury uh, the lead at this point, but like probably the craziest moment was from Tim Scott, where he uh, said that the Johnson's great society was harder to survive for black families than slavery, than virtually all forms of legalized discrimination. Absolutely insane claim. Most deranged take on that stage. There wow. Some deranged fucking takes. Uh I do want to say, just once again, as someone who tangentially can claim New Jersey ancestry, how deeply disappointed I am in Chris Christie. <laughs> it's 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 just a fucking disgrace. Okay, I'm looking at this guy. He has no charisma, no stage presence. Hey, no I mean, policy it, objectives. The highlight of his performance, and by highlight I mean low <laughs> was when he said he called Trump a coward and said that if he doesn't start, you know, participating in the debates, we're gonna have to stop calling him Donald Trump and we're gonna have to start calling him Donald Duck. I saw like a like a like a, a small like TikTok of that, and I cringed. But at the same time, it's like I don't. I hate both. So it's like it's it's hard for me to like really internalize how I'm supposed to feel about that. Like he really thought he popped off and he kind of did, but like still No, he gross. just rehearsed a line. He didn't pop off. I mean, I don't know. I I don't know about like uh like how that line was received, but I feel like I feel like a lot of people really like felt that. There were several jokes and other lines like that that I think were just not they did not register at all. Um, that was kind of one of them. Mike Pence thought he was like the Joker. Yeah, he, he had one line where he was like, "I disagree with Tim Scott. 
Joe Biden needs to not go to the picket line. He needs to go to the unemployment line. He really no thought one he was hilarious. He no really one laughed. And then he like went and he would always do this where he would like kind of like when he was asked a question, he would like respond to something that was asked like 20 minutes ago um, to someone else. Um, but he's like, I just want to reply to what Chris Christie said about uh, uh, Joe Biden sleeping with a member of the teachers union. He's like, well, I've been sleeping with a teacher for 36 years. And it just no one, no one popped at that. Do not get Emmanuel Macron on that debate stage. He's going to get excited about that <laughs> one. Uh, I, I don't know. Ron DeSantis didn't get enough traction at this one. I thought he was really going to say some demonic shit, but I think they correctly knew not to give him enough stage time. Dude, I, I, I've never been more baffled about how someone is like. I mean, he's not the front runner, but he's like the front runner of this C team, um, I guess. And like, he has just no energy. He has like negative charisma, negative every. I mean, there was that one. Um, I mean, this wasn't like on the debate, but it was on the debate stage, and there was leaked footage of it where like he's getting gussied up during commercial break. Oh God. Yeah, it looked looked really bad. He he still does that that weird performative smile that just looks completely unnatural. Except now it wasn't even like a smile, so it's like he goes through that awkward, you know, facial motion to achieve nothing. And it's just he is it he has nothing going for him. I mean, the, the, I, I mean, obviously this probably isn't like shocking, right? But like obviously most of the debate stuff was there was there was a lot of lies that were told. Um, yeah. A lot of, you know, and, and, and uh, to be fair to, like, the questions, there was actually a lot of pretty good questions being asked. From and Univision some, especially. Yeah, and some shocking framing, too, where, like, you know, obviously most people pivoted, like, almost every question to, like, immigration and the border and stuff like that. But there was, like, one question specifically that was, like, well, like, 57% of the fentanyl that you're so concerned about is brought in by American citizens. And of course, that that bit of framing is just ignored, right? Anything that's tied to crime is, you know, fabricated or you know, made up, right? I mean, like DeSantis is directly called out on on the pretty deplorable state of Florida on like you know a million different demographics, and he's just like, uh, "Well, we're a dynamic state, and it's the rest of the country's fault." Even yeah, that was at that the was bottom of the barrel. That was particularly disgusting on his part. Also, I do want to mention. Doug Burgum just kept trying to insert himself into that discussion. And I'm like, dude, you're from like the Dakotas. What immigration are you guys dealing with? I mean, that was how he just responded to anything in the debate, right? He he was like, and maybe asked a single question. Everything else was like him inserting himself into a question because he's like, I know I will never get any other time. I have no business being here, <laughs> but I'm going to force everyone to know that I am here. And I mean, I guess in the sense that we actually remembered his name this time, it kind of worked. I guess. <laughs> it's, you know, one step closer. Doug Burgum, instead of worrying about shaving the budget, you need to shave those eyebrows. Dear God. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. All, all in all, though, it's like it, it was it was two fronts of psychic damage with the concurrent uh, Trump event as well as the debate. I yeah, think and, I, yeah, go ahead, go ahead. I was gonna say, like, the one thing with it that was like maybe a little less psychic damage was just that, like, despite the fact that like a ton of deplorable things were said, it just felt so low stakes. Like, it's just like you couldn't, like, 
like Trump could die tomorrow, and I couldn't fathom any of these people taking his place as the candidate. Right? It, like that's kind of, and it's like it feels like they've just the more and more this primary goes on, it feels like these people are just demeaning themselves. They're doing more damage to themselves than anyone else. It feels like most of the deplorable things that they say is just like trying to throw like these nuclear Hal Marys just out of desperation to get to third place or whatever. And it's just really pathetic. Tim Scott even said Iowa in a sentence. Like that is the mo- the biggest reach I've seen from a presidential candidate. <laughs> I think it might have been the question where they asked, how do you plan on actually winning? Right. <laughs> yeah, but I, I definitely like hit my limit. I think like five minutes from the end. So I, I tapped out. I don't think I missed much after that. But John, I will say, um, I just want to congratulate you for taking care of yourself. Um, yourself first and not subjecting yourself to this psychic horror because holy shit yeah it sounds like i missed a lot so yeah so you know the biggest thing as i said was just the idea that uh welfare is uh, worse than slavery Um, of course which you know yeah which i mean i i guess you know like i mean it's a kind of like quick kind of like just all of the implications of that are just so gross, right? The idea that, like, like essentially, he's insinuating that, like, black women are just after, like, a paycheck, so they'll, like, leave their man to get a welfare check instead, which is, like, kind of absurd on the front, right? Like, there's no way, like, a welfare check, like, replaces, like, that other income. If If there's any relation that the two might have, it's that maybe some women feel more confident being able to leave really bad relationships because they at least have something of a safety net. That's the only like sort of connection I could fathom there. But again, it's sort of like making it explicitly like this racial thing. And again, it's like, because he's, you know, the black man on stage that gives him some level of authority to suggest it. um, Even though it's completely baseless. Yeah, I think Tim Scott can very easily be taken out with a damn. So both you and Lindsey Graham are the only senators without wives. What's going on here, buddy? God, I forgot. Have you That's been following wild. that scandal at all? Uh, get us into it. Get it. Just catch. So up. he has this girlfriend that he's uh, she's a little camera shy. He doesn't want anyone to know about. Like he's like, I she have a girlfriend. In Canada. That's basically what it is, right? Is it's it's one hundred percent like that that one guy that you went to like elementary school with, who's like, I have a girlfriend. Trust me, she just goes to another school. Like that's basically what it is. Where he's like, and it's like, I think he did it because there was like allegations. Like, I think mainly it was like from the Republican Party that there was like questions about his sexuality. So he had to be like, oh crap. Well, uh, I do have a girlfriend, guys. Trust me. Um, she's just you know a little shy from the cameras. I don't want to include her in my public life. Just really silly stuff. Yeah, at least Lindsey Graham has the decency to be like, I won't tell. <laughs> well, he said he would, um, when if he was elected president, his uh, sister would be the first lady. That that's that's even worse. I kind of liked it when he was like an effeminate. <laughs> yeah, I mean, because like there is that stereotype his of like sister? the effeminate, like you know, plantation crat who's like. Somebody fetch me my fried green tomatoes and like Lindsey Graham and uh, John Kennedy from Louisiana fit that archetype. But oh boy, oh boy, saying your sister's the first lady, that is not a good look. Or, yeah. or I don't know, maybe it was, it was way back in 2015. So, you know, Woo! 
Man, that's yeah. I'm I'm really glad the Democratic debates haven't started yet. I don't Will think they're there happening. Any? Are they going to be? I don't think they're doing any debates. No. Huh. That's honestly good because like I don't want to see like the the old man fight between uh, Biden and RFK Jr. That would be the most embarrassing thing we've ever seen on TV. I kind of do I mean, want to see that, you know. The same way you want to see like a, a train derail. Well, well no, no, but it's, it's, I'll tell you how it's going to exactly go. It's going to be like Biden being like, "No, listen here, Jack. Uh, uh, the, the deficit, and uh, you go to Joe Biden. Dot. Uh, I'm sorry, man. And then you got RFK Jr. and that whiny. The USDA <laughs> is putting snake semen in children's well, cereal. Like that that stupid ass voice no, he got. I can't. Well, what you get is like you get. We wouldn't have to be on strike there it if is. we just got rid of the vaccine. No vaccine. Workers are perfectly fine and happy. Okay. I mean, that's the entire basis of this campaign, right? Is just hating vaccines. Uh, does he have any other meaningful positions? Uh, wanting to bring unity. Uh, the CIA is good. He is the only pro CIA candidate. Like, which is weird because it's like he has like this reputation of being like anti CIA from some people on the online left. But I think that's just like purely just like, oh well, like uh, you know, they killed his uncle. There's no way he's pro CIA, but he's openly said he thinks it's an organization filled with wonderful people. Jesus. Yeah, I think I don't know. I think RFK Jr. is just—he's trying to get press for a for a. He's trying to spin this into a podcast. It's always just, just, just hear me out. Nine times out of ten, it's a dude trying to start a podcast six months from now. Which is why we're excited to introduce our new co-host. <laughs> <laughs> I know his positions on vaccines are controversial, but hear me out. We really just wanted to bring in, you know, a diverse set of voices here and, um, you know, experience the whole spectrum of politics all in one person. All in one person. Isn't he like, isn't he like super, like, doesn't he like support like a national abortion ban as well? Um, I don't recall. I think he, he came out and said something that to a sort of effect of that, where it was like, he supported basically like a more restrictive standard than Roe as sort of the national standard, but like would allow for some abortions. So getting there, it's the, uh, the hand wavy about as like factless centrist as it gets version of that. Gotcha. Yeah. Every, everything about RFK Jr.'s beliefs are just, it's incoherent. It's, it's good enough to like, position to someone with not a lot of sophistication that you're outside the acceptable norm but then when you really look at like what it is he's offering it's uh it's not it's neither sophisticated nor radical i would say and 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 also i just i i feel like i feel the need to reiterate this point again um dude is taking trt uh but has a lot of shit to say about trans people yeah, that's that's interesting, <laughs> isn't it? Yeah. yeah that's, that's a good point. Listen, um, 
Oh, go ahead. Go ahead. I was going to say, while we aren't getting the Democratic debate, we are getting um, DeSantis versus Newsom debate uh, on Fox News, I believe, Why? in November. Why? So there was an interview last night with Gavin Newsom about that. And he said, well, the, you shouldn't be asking me. You should be asking Ron DeSantis, who is, I think, I'm not so sure after tonight, running for president. Um <laughs> And he just like he just savaged him. So I guess like it was this like it, like it's on Hannity's show for whatever reason. It's like this red state versus blue state thing. Um. And uh, yeah. I mean, I don't really know why it's ha I mean, like I think it's. I kind of question the rationale for it. It's probably useful for Newsom for like building his brand for presumably a twenty twenty eight run. Um. It doesn't help DeSantis at all because as he pointed out, right? Like it's like he's running for president he's like just debating some guy who you know just happens to be another governor like it's really weird like it's but you know you have that to look forward to for um i don't know what to expect from that yeah i got no i let's let's take a wait and see approach on that something something bodes ill about it but i can't put my finger about finger on it yet Okay, on good news, I do want to say that the UAW strike, as we've mentioned, is still progressing well. Um, the Writers Guild of America strike has reached a contract. Uh, at the time of this recording, I believe the contract is still being rewritten. Um, and SAG-AFTRA is still on strike. So the strike wave of 2023 is, is I would say extracting concessions where were applicable. Let's see how the SAG yeah. after um or sorry, the WGA strike language actually comes out. Um, but again, the UAW stand up strike, great stuff. Great stuff. We support. We love to For see. For sure, it. yeah. And uh, a quick little note on the uh writers guild strike is that um uh, they have I think have kind of more or less said they will not start working without the actors. Um so that'll probably also be a pretty powerful point of leverage to kind of mm. get concessions for them, right? Because you're going to need both in order to start, you know, working in the studios again. Yeah, and I think I think SAG-AFTRA is actually, they're going to be trying to do some type of negotiations on Monday. I think I saw something. Yeah, I think I saw something about that too. That'll be good. Yeah, best of luck to all unions at the negotiating table. I hope you get everything you want. I do and also so. love the fact that they kind of expanded their um, their demands to like kind of in include uh, video game companies as well. Yeah, yeah, that was I think a relatively new addition, right? Yeah. Was was bringing in the video game stuff, but I think yeah, that was really good because I know, um, like the voice acting industry in general is kind of like this weird like. It's sort of gilded where a lot of people that are, you know, into, you know, that stuff is like, oh, wow, I'd love to be a voice actor and whatnot. But there's um, the reality of the job, right, is, you know, kind of like as most jobs, right, is it's, you know, not necessarily pro-labor. And um, there's concerns about, you know, obviously now AI, but there's just um, always kind of concerns about how, you know, they're paid for different roles and stuff like that. But it's it's good to see that video games have been encompassed by that as well, because it is a major component of uh, a lot of their workload at this point. That that's also good because that's been like a from what I understand, it's been an incredibly difficult industry to get any union traction in. So this Absolutely. at least backdoor entry helps a lot. 
Yeah, absolutely. I like. I feel like in the realm of like, um, art and like media, video games are arguably one of the worst industries to ever actually work for. Whether you're doing like the, the yeah. artistry and drawing, or you're like writing code, it's it's absolutely horrible. So it mm-hmm. would be really awesome if we some type of labor force, some type of labor movement within the video game industry. And yeah, hopefully it inspires, you know, other actors in the industry or, you know, not, not, I mean, obviously we're talking about actual actors now, but, you know, actors as in, you know, players and, you know, people in the, the industry, hopefully it'll cause them to uh, sort of see the value and uh, solidarity of, you know, of their labor. That's, that's definitely a positive development. Um, let's get into some uh, some U.S. congressional coverage real quick. Um, we there's been, there's just been some silly stuff going on. So let's let's start with the John Fetterman um, suit debacle. Uh, I th- th- this is probably one of the dumbest things we've had the luxury of covering on the show. Uh, Josh, it's one of the dumbest things I've had the luxury of covering um, in my class too. Oh boy, how's your class taking it? <laughs> I don't necessarily know. I kind of went on a rant about it. Um, so this debacle is basically, it's lasted about like a little under a week. So it opened up with, um, I think Schumer had said that like, we're just not going to enforce the dress code rules. Um, which sparked just a ton of controversy, both from people within the chamber and journalists. Um, there was, um, I need the specific quote and, and also the journalist to throw under the bus, but it's from the Washington post. Um, they said, um, well, anyways, I, I guess to kind of like lead into it, right. Is, you know, the idea that like, we don't have this dress code is like just horrible, you know, terrible. Why would we do this? The specific quote is from, uh, one Kathleen Parker from the uh, Washington post opinions said, as little as I have loved Republicans the past few years, Coinciding with the rise of our own little autocrat, at least Donald Trump knows how to dress. No does way. Does he? Does he? Right. I mean, there's, I mean, obviously, like, that's kind of like, there's that surface level, like, what the heck? But also, like, by your own words, you consider him to be a fascist. But at <laughs> but. least, you know, he obeys the rules of decorum, unlike this monstrous ogre that we've allowed to desecrate the Senate floor. Um, there were people who have compared this to January 6th because, hey, the QAnon shaman didn't dress super well either. Um, John Fetterman's basically the same deal as that. Um, just absolutely nuts. On the, um, maybe not exactly bright side, but um, maybe to John Fetterman's credit, he has brought Congress to work uh, maybe faster than any single force in the history of the institution because they yesterday passed a resolution formally instating a dress code um, that will be enforced in the future. You know, of, of all the demonic things that have happened in that chamber alone, if we just talk about the lack of decorum, I mean, for, for crying out loud, Strom Thurmond pissed in a bucket at the, at the lectern of the Senate. Well, I mean, you used to have like spittoons, and, like like right. buckets are just like you know people spitting tobacco in them, right? I mean, like there was, there's a drawer full of candy in the Senate. There literally is. Yeah, there, there, there's the candy seed, uh, awesome. literally uh, in the. I think it might be in both chambers actually, but yeah. I mean, you would think that like, if you're if you're some politician, you would think that like wearing hoodies, like shorts, 
is a good thing to show that like you're not some super elite like annoying person but so it, well, it, i don't know it's just it's just it's such a layup just to like well, and it, walk around in a hoodie you know yeah and it's funny too because like i mean it, it conveniently coincided with my discussion of home and hill style apparently this is very much a clear like we need a clear difference between hill and home style when it comes to fashion um I did love his response to this. Um, he just uh, his official statement of this was just the uh, the Kevin James meme. Yeah, it's um, <laughs> been circulating around, um, <laughs> which felt appropriate. Um, I was like, I'm still not entirely sure what the purpose of that meme is, but I was like, I think I think this is the correct use. It's just it's just the ain't I a stinker expression, yeah. basically. I I think like you know. I'm willing to give Pennsylvania the autumn, the honorary Midwest um, acceptance, uh, <laughs> mainly because as a guy who wears Carhartt uh, hoodies and ball shorts, I felt seen, heard, and represented. But more specifically, like someone, someone was saying this on Twitter. I can't find who said it, but they basically said that, like the reason why there's all this like um, fuss over over it. Is this idea that elites should look like elites? Yeah, and, and, and I, I think there's a little bit too where a lot, because so many of them are lawyers, like the law is like the one area where there's still like kind of required dress codes um, and whatnot. But every, so like that's also you know it's just they're just so inundated with that culture. And there's so many like I mean across American life now like. Every industry, I think, has basically gone casual. I don't think anyone does formal wear anymore, except in, like, limited capacities. And I think, yeah, like you said, it's, like, it's basically law, maybe, like, banking and, like... Probably sales or something like Probably that, you know? sales, yeah, where people still wear, like, suit jackets. And even then, like, over the years, I've seen people just ditch ties, ditch belts. Yeah. Um... I think like the most formal thing I've ever seen anyone wear, one as a conflict as a, you know, as a consequence of how hot it's getting these days, is just yeah, the blazer with like the two buttons open on the dress shirt. That's as dressed up as I've seen anyone. Yeah. I mean, I just, I think the, the the main thing with this, right? I mean, it's it's obviously other than like sort of the elitism is just the insanity of like the fact that this sucked up so much like media coverage. I, yeah. I don't know so much on the networks. I think the networks were pretty calm with it, but like a lot of like the, you know, the, the, the journals, uh, you know, New York times, Washington post, all of them, New York post did a thing where they, uh, they're like, Oh, we had like one of our journalists dress up like John Fetterman and try to go to these five star restaurants and he was turned away. So um, goofy. Almost yeah, proving super, the point. Proving the point. <laughs> right. Yeah. Like it's, you know, absolutely ridiculous. But I think it was just the fact that, like, you know, on top of it getting all that attention and just getting so much member attention, right? Is it's like some seriously messed up stuff is happening in that institution right now. Right. <laughs> like, you know, we've got, uh, and I know it's on the outline, you've got the Bob Menendez scandal. You've got um, the government about to shut down, probably, you know, a you know, in a couple days, right? I mean, we, I, they had the uh, the clock during the uh, oh, uh, Biden impeachment, right? The Biden impeachment itself uh, inquiry is also just kind of ridiculous. Um, all of this stuff that's sort of just going on, right, that has, like, real impacts, um, you know, on, like, you know, 
policy in people's lives, but like this was the one thing that could not be allowed to stand. Um, it was funny too because like one of the main uh, architects of the resolution to get rid of it was um, Joe Manchin, and Joe Once Manchin, again. yeah, Joe Manchin made headlines because uh, that report came out about child poverty recently that basically like reinforce what we kind of all already knew about the child tax credit that it you know it have child poverty and then the minute you got rid of it it doubled um you know right back to where it was uh so it's like literally like you had these like policy priorities that are just not priorities compared to maintaining the uh decor and you know ostentationness of the United States Senate Yeah, I think I think once again, like we've we've said this ad nauseum on the show, where like the adherence to norms remains sacrosanct, and anything of real moral or spiritual importance is always, you know, left to the dogs. Um, but let let's get into some of the real issues that got obscured by this, because you're right, like some of this, I'll. I, I actually am getting blindsided by some of this, so I'm glad we're getting a chance to talk about it. So we'll start with the thing I did pay some attention to, the Bob Menendez bribe scandal. Once again, New Jersey is not... is. Uh, let, let's talk about the New Jersey uh, Senate delegation first and foremost. Like, you literally got, like, Bob Menendez as the... Yeah, I got I got in trouble for taking bribes. And then you have, like, Cory Booker, who's just the... Uh, I'm just happy to be here, weirdo. You know what I mean? 100%. Yeah. Um, did, I, don't, I don't know. I, I sent it to you. I don't know if you saw it, what uh, Cory Booker had to say about yeah, Menendez. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> let's see. Let's see if I <laughs> We're apparently at a lunch. He like felt the need to defend his character. And I, I believe he's also calling. Oh, yeah. I hate this. Yeah, hate the sin, hate the sin, but love the sinner. <laughs> oh, my God. Yeah. Apparently, it was met with awkward silence. I'm like, just. I I didn't have to try very hard actually to imagine those words coming out of Cory Booker's mouth, but the minute I did, I was like, I can't imagine reacting to this with anything other than you know either awkward silence or just hysterical laughter at his expense. I think hysterical laughter at his expense remains the uh, the one correct option. But like, <laughs> if we get into some of the details of this. I guess, I guess, I don't know, maybe Bob Menendez was just really picking up the slack and being the senator from Jersey. This is this. So this is his second set of indictments, right? He was indicted back in 18, I want to say, or maybe it was 16. I don't I don't remember for sure off the top of my head, but it was one of those years. And it, he it was uh, dismissed because there was a hung jury. Uh, notably, some members of the juror were also at his like campaign victory <laughs> thing. So, you know, God. I guess, you know. Yeah, and basically the, the the long and short of it is that um, he, both him and his wife uh, are being accused of accepting hundreds of thousands of dollars of bribes in cash, gold, lavish gifts, and other expenses in exchange for using his power to benefit a trio of New Jersey businessmen. And I think part of where it gets really fun is like they may have had connections to the Egyptian government. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I heard that. Which is, which, uh, it just led to some really funny memes I've seen, but it's like, I'm fucking sorry. He's the senator from New Jersey. What was he going to do? Well, there's um, a member who is, or a former member who I think might be running for his seat now, 
Um, but he was he was defeated, I think, in the last cycle. But he had mentioned when he was in Congress, he had passed some resolutions that were like tough on Egypt, and they were killed in Menendez's committee. Yeah, because he was the chair of the Senate Foreign Relations Committee. Yeah. So that's yeah, I mean that's a literally quid pro quo once again. Uh, well, and what we've, I, we've seen because he has supported. Um, I think I, we don't know exactly how much they've paid him, right? But it was like we know it was hundreds of thousands. Um, and he has secured for them nearly a hundred million dollars in arms sales in his role as the chair of that foreign relations committee. Man, it's always about the Benjamins. But I mean, it shows you know the the level you know the return on investment there, right? Right, yeah. right. And I I think it's hilarious that like in a press conference, he literally invoked this is very traumatic for me as the child of uh, Cuban emigres. Yep. <laughs> And the thing didn't, is, is he 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 made it to the United States before Castro ever said yep. it. Didn't he also he didn't they when um he was trying to explain where the money come from? Didn't he also say it was like a precaution for emergencies? Which yeah 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 he said he's I been love like that. he's been just checking out hundreds of dollars here and there just in case of emergency because of his Cuban background. You know, used right. to having to like carry the cash with him or whatever. Which again was as I pointed out, he was born here before the revolution. <laughs> What do you mean? You guys don't have a couple hundred thousand in cash just laying around your house for emergencies? Like, what do you, what do you guys do? I'm, I'm not, I'm not well equipped for an emergency. I'm not going to uh. lie. <laughs> just again, I guess, like, I don't know. He really did represent his state there. I think, like, I just finished my Sopranos rewatch as this was going down, <laughs> and I'm like, yep, I would expect nothing less from. Is he the senior or junior senator from Jersey? Junior, right? Yeah, there's no way he's been there less time than Booker, right? Ah, uh, let me let me double check. I think I mean, he, might, he might not have been in that specific. He might have been in the house before. The dude's sixty nine. Perfect. Nice. Um, <laughs> nice. <laughs> Serving as the senior United States senator from New Jersey. Yeah. See, that's what I'm fucking talking about. You want a guy <laughs> like that? You want a guy like that in charge? I love to see when like the, the the allegations first dropped, and he's like. This is an egregious attack on a, a senior Latino member of, of the, the institution. <laughs> so just like weaponizing everything, and it, like I, he didn't point this out, but like at the start of Hispanic Heritage Month too, like that is kind of fucked up. I ain't gonna lie, that that's is true. <laughs> he did everything right, and they indicted him. Yeah, I did everything right, <laughs> and they indicted me. You're fucking god. Okay. This is a high tech lynching. Oh God, that wasn't who's in that again? Clarence Thomas. Thomas. <laughs> He's fucked up for saying that. Oh my God. What, what was the thing I said in the Discord, John? Um, American jail, then Baptist hell. Yep. Yep. That's that's that. <laughs> I decree that. <sighs> okay. Uh, dealing with more uh, congressional business. Uh, I missed out on some of this. Uh, Josh, can you catch us up on the potential government shutdown? Uh, yeah, so, um, obviously, uh, you know, for those who are unfamiliar, we have to pass uh, a federal budget every year, uh, or the government shuts down. Um, we have not passed a number of re budget resolutions that need to be passed for that. Um, I don't know the exact count off the top of my head, but, um, we need to pass that. Um, the Senate has passed, uh, numerous bills to do this. The House, um, keeps getting blocked, I think largely because of the Hassert rule, uh, which is the idea that the majority party is not going to bring something to the floor that the majority of their members don't want. 
Um, and we don't necessarily know if it is entirely the majority of the Republican Party, but we know at least um, several of the more extreme members have been very against passing anything other than a, um, you know, a, a version of the budget that makes severe cuts to, um, we've seen various proposals that make serious cuts to Social Security, um, to low-income uh, school um, lunches and other programs tied to those as well. So a lot of the, you know, usual demonstrable, you know, shit that they like to throw in that stuff. So McCarthy has largely caved into them, has not, you know, acted to pass anything. Um, there's really not um, anything else I can really provide on that. I mean, we, I don't know if they, I think at this point, they're probably going to have to use like a discharge petition or something just to get it out of some type of committee. Um, but really, it's sort of like we're seeing just how much the McCarthy speakership is being held hostage by the most radical members of the Republican Party. And this was also the case during his appointment. And if I'm not mistaken, wasn't yeah. the budget also held up because of that? Last year, uh, or so, I believe. Yes, I believe so. And it's um, there's a, some weird kind of self-reflection on this where some members do acknowledge that like Republicans tend to get blamed for shutdowns. And I mean, they shut down the government, I think, twice under Trump when they were they had control of both chambers. So, you know, they, they, there's uh, some oddity in just how they operate as a caucus. And by that, I mean, they, they just don't operate right. Like they are right. very clearly, um, you know, I mean, they, they've always been kind of I mean, for a while now, they've been ungovernable. And whenever they're in the majority, you see the extent of it. They aren't exactly unified by anything other than like a shared hatred that has its own little like vague intricacies uh, that sort of drives that in different directions towards different groups and stuff like that. Um, but yeah, I mean, it seems like we're most likely going to head towards a shutdown. You have some weird remarks from uh, what was the one member? Uh, Brendan Williams had said that uh, he will um, because there's always been the sort of this argument that well, members shouldn't collect a paycheck during a shutdown, just like all other federal workers, and that would prevent shutdowns. Um, I don't necessarily know that it would, because a lot of them are independently wealthy. Right. Uh, he claimed that he's not, so of course he'll accept his pay, but he very much is independently wealthy. Um, <laughs> that's not beside the point, but he also said that he doesn't think there will be a huge amount of sympathy for, for load federal workers and whatnot. And that's kind of the story that doesn't really get talked about enough, probably with shutdowns, is just the impact it has on federal government workers who get their payments for load and things like that. And, you know, the uh, government will probably shut down unless a resolution's passed. And to be fair, the Senate resolution would just kind of kick the ball up to uh, November. But uh, I believe it'll, the shutdown will start um, this Sunday, the October 1st. So, uh First of the month, usually when your you know rents due and whatnot, probably a great time to uh, not get paid. Classic Republican caucus behavior. What what can I say? Yeah. What what can be said? And and then just in in addition to that fuckery, um, I missed part of this, but like this is one of those things that I, I tune into, and I'm like, no, of course this is happening. Um. In like a reversal of like the Trump impeachment hearings as a tit for tat, the Republicans are now initiating Joe Biden impeachment hearings. Uh, if my take matters at all, I think we should retroactively impeach every president. <laughs> uh, but that's besides the point. 
Uh, is this regard? Is this related to like Hunter Biden's activities in Ukraine? Uh, yeah, that seems to be the main uh, sort of angle of it, right? I mean, on some level, it's also kind of clear that they don't really know what they're doing with this. All of their witnesses have admitted that they are not eyewitness or firsthand witnesses to any of these crimes. Um, the one of these smoking gun papers they show a piece of evidence they showed was like this wire transfer from uh hunter biden um from i I think it might have been from china um in 2017 when biden was neither a government official nor a candidate for office Mm -hmm. um when this was pointed out by some journalists um the uh I can't remember which member was asked it, but he just kind of got angry and dismissed it. Um, so he doesn't care about the timeline or he's like hoping that they can just get the Biden family in to talk about all the details, which is kind of like ridiculous, right? Here's an open invitation to confess to crimes um, that, you know, you may or may not have committed. Um, <laughs> just an open-ended one, right? Like not even like, oh, hey, we have specific questions about X, Y, or Z. It's like, no, just, just come in and, you know, we'll figure out what kind of crimes you committed. Um, I think from what I'm gathering, uh, I've heard some sources, uh, have reported that like some staffers and some other members of the Republican caucus are kind of embarrassed by this because it does seem to be like relatively underprepared and, um, in the, uh, hearing where this inquiry has been launched, uh, within committee, they've largely been kind of eaten alive by like Democrats have largely been on message. Um, you have like AOC on that committee, you have, um, Raskin on that committee. Uh, you have that, uh, what's his name? He's kind of like this rising star in the party now. Callis, um, I think. Was that his name? What, who? I'm trying to figure, figure out the guy's name. I forgot. Uh, the, uh, Daniel Goldman. He's a yeah. uh, representative from New York. Um, I, I, don't, I, I don't think he's like an overly progressive individual, but he's a lawyer and he's very sharp when it comes to a lot of this stuff. So he's in that hearing as well. Uh, you've uh, Garcia, you have a lot of people where like, this is probably good for like them just getting like camera time and stuff like that, but it might not be, I mean, there's probably more important things to be worried about than that. But yeah, it's kind of, mm-hmm. it's this weird, like little fiasco again, it's sort of, you know, the, let's push to do this, but right before the government shuts down, it, it kind of shows like a sort of lack of, um, seriousness in Congress as a whole at the moment. Yeah, I, you know, you would think for like the tit for tat strategy for the Trump impeachments, they'd have like a better case prepared and uh, have a plan for this. But I don't know, maybe it's kind of, if I, if I was able to, you know, subpoena people and then be like, okay, I actually don't know what I'm going to ask you. Yeah, I would have, I would have (laughs) used that ability too. maybe I'm not better than them. I don't know. (laughs) <laughs> i don't know it's just it's just kind of wild because like when when trump was getting indicted and um everyone was kind of reacting to all this the one argument that i saw um constantly against the indictment was you know this is going to set a new precedent this is going to be disastrous for the democracy and like now that it's happening and the republicans are doing it they're just fumbling the ball which is kind of awesome yeah, I mean, and I, I I do remember all that stuff too, and like it is kind of interesting. Where like I think there was always the, the the rebuttal to that was always that like, well, it's you know, and you know, as someone who kind of studies the executive branch and you know all the branches really, 
um, impeachment is just this political process, right? I mean, it sort of has like the, the guise of legality and whatnot, but it's really like whatever you can convince people is an impeachable offense is an impeachable offense. Um, I mean, the laws that they try to impeach um, Andrew Johnson before, for like in the very first impeachment was like those laws were considered unconstitutional. They passed them literally just to set up his impeachment and then impeached him on those grounds. And it was after the court had already said that that was an unconstitutional law. So like, it's kind of whatever. And like it, the process could always be political, but it's, I, I think it, it's hard to sell like the general public that, you know, this is fine to just like, yeah, just impeach a president for whatever reason. Right. I mean, I think Trump, you know, obviously like, <laughs> As we've seen now, right? I mean, there's like there's kind of like no end to his legal woes um, and criminal activity in a lot of ways. And I think the Biden stuff just isn't convincing to a lot of people. I mean, even the hypocrisy came up about you know Jared Kushner and Ivanka, right? Like they're they're making way more money than um, Hunter Biden ever did for Burisma, um, working for the Saudis, who Trump also admitted he has an unlimited line of credit to. Yeah. Um, in a court filing, right? Like, that's kind of like, I mean, I, I don't know how you could be more explicit about, like, having that, like, very clear foreign tie. And probably, you know, they have considerable influence over you at that point. Yeah, and then didn't Trump also have, like, another legal thing pop up? Or, like, am I am I just... He, yeah, I mean, that, was, that, that was the New York case um, where they, uh, they, they found him and his uh, sons guilty of fraud for uh, greatly exaggerating the value of their properties. Um, things like that. And of course, those were used to secure far more favorable loans than he ever had any real right to, which is where that retort about the uh, having an unlimited line of credit with the Saudis came up, which is a weird thing to admit to. But again, yeah. it's sort of, it's Trump. <laughs> oh my God. Yeah, I, I, I'm glad to be back in the congressional reporting space because I've been out of the loop. But as it turns out, even when you're within the loop, none of this really makes sense. <laughs> well, I mean, it makes sense. It's just, you know, whether or not it's. I, it makes sense. It's just not, you know, it's not. Yeah, it, moral, it makes ethical. sense. But you have to acknowledge that the people who are doing it are motivated by very bizarre <laughs> sets of rationale. Yeah. Yeah. <sighs> I think the time has come to maybe speak about events uh, occurring in our neighbor to the far North. Uh, before <laughs> we begin this section, I just want to, uh, I just want to put out a quick disclaimer. Okay. N at no point on this show in any past episode nor any future episode, um, have we ever tried to be epic geopolitics guys? That's not our bag, nor do we ever intend it to be our bag. Um, and I think we're pretty good about confessing what we know and what we don't know. Uh, what I will say is the stuff coming out of Canada kind of like puts, it just, it, it prevents us from doing anything but speculate in some cases. And also another thing I want to add is like we have been very good about avoiding Ukraine war coverage. We've been good about avoiding taking sides in that whole thing. I think guys who have turned the Ukraine war into like a passive entertainment or a way to LARP for either side in the war 
are really just doing something gross. So we've been able to avoid that. But one of the stories we're going to get into is like just really odd. And it, it behooves the question, just what is really going on in Canada? So we'll start, we'll start with the first story here. Um, Justin Trudeau accused India of hunting rogue elements in Canada, or at least people that India has deemed rogue elements, specifically separatists who have migrated to Canada. And that created a bit of a rift in the international relations space. I want to say, was that last week? Very recently. This happened very recently. And all I, all I got to say is, Indians having shooters was like the last thing on my bingo board this year. <laughs> that, that prompted up probably the biggest mass exodus of people texting my line being like, what is Khalistan? Can you explain? <laughs> well, can you explain? <laughs> so the, what, I, what I can say is like, it's it's like a right wing separatist movement, and unfortunately, a lot of diaspora in Canada seems to come from these right wing separatist elements. They were also like unfairly maligned during like the Indira, Indira Gandhi government, but I don't know that history, so I'm not going to comment on it. What I will say too is like. All we know is that like a community leader who was involved with this stuff was like killed i don't think we got much about what happened but what we do know is i think it was like shot outside his apartment right he was shot outside his apartment okay yeah so um what ends up happening is trudeau's like india did it india says no and india twitter says we killed him you're welcome (laughs) no I, I real quick, I was kind of wondering because, like, I, we've talked a little bit about this um, off the show, uh, but uh, like when you kind of like refer to like the movement as like this right wing separatist movement, is like the whole thing like right wing in nature, or is it just kind of co opted? And then like the follow up is, isn't like the current Indian government already pretty right wing? So like, where do these guys fall on that spectrum? And that's why like we tend to. I think we've correctly decided to dodge some of this geopolitics coverage because picking out good guys and bad guys is never easy. Mm-hmm. And sometimes you'll run into stories where everybody involved is right wing. And like my read of the situation <laughs> is like the Indian government is right wing. The Khalistani separatist movement is a right wing and the Canadian state is right wing. So like this is just a three on three. Like I like none of the players involved type of situation. Can you tell me why the, the that specific movement was outlawed in India? Like I don't I don't know too much about the the separatist movement. I th- I think like I don't know I could probably and this this is where like I wish I knew, I knew more like Indian history especially like post independence because that's like critical reading, and this is why I'm very hard on the Indian diaspora in the United States. Like we're all very surface level with the culture. And we know nothing about our history or like what's going on in geopolitics, right? But I'd probably say it's got to do with um, the fallout of partition, some of the fallout of the, the independence years. It's probably got to do with uh, 
Indira Gandhi declaring the national emergency. Um, and just also just being a dissident movement. I don't think nation states look upon that kindly in general. That's my spark notes, and that's also my dumbass notes. Um, mm-hmm. But to that end, it's like a lot of those elements made it into Canada at some point. And this is not the first time that like they've caused controversy in Canadian Indian relations. Like as far as 2013, or basically like ever since Trudeau started coming to prominence, uh, he's been getting a lot of these allegations from Indian like political observers. Um, I think one person, one member of his cabinet had alleged ties to the Khalistan movement, so that had people like mm. incensed. Um, Canada just has like a understated right wing like political subculture that like American observers aren't always privy to or aware of, and I think that kind of tends to color the bedfellows the Amer- uh, the Canadian government tends to get in with. Like America is is right wing in its own ways, but I think Canada does things much much more covertly, but also just like it's a little bit closer to like the right in the United States, like circa like like immediately post nine eleven or maybe even like the nineties, where it's just kind of this general cultural conservatism is kind of the vibe I get right, where it's like not mm-hmm. like not as in your face as it is now and like when you look at like right-wing culture here but like in that more just kind of like everyone's drinking the kool-aid like especially from like the 90s right right so it's just like it, it just it was a really weird um occurrence to play off in international events where i think there's been like a rising star for bricks as of late I'm really not sure how to interpret those events. I'm not going to make declarative takes on those, but what I will say is like Canada trying to get a lick in is always odd. I'm also just in this weird multipolarity model we're in. India tries to play both sides where they're friendly with the United States but also is comfortable doing business with China and Russia. Uh and Canada's own um history of hosting right-wing separatist elements it leads into the next story in the outline so we talked about um calistani separatists in canada in this episode um the banderite movement from ukraine the followers of stepan bandera who have been they're part of their own nazi project i would say also have like a big following in canada it's like it's just weird stuff that like I I'm not the best person to to refer to on some of mm-hmm. this, but within Canadian Parliament, uh, they when when Zelensky was visiting, um, they invited a SS volunteer. Yeah, his uh, name was uh, Yaroslav Hunka. Right, uh, right. Might have might have butchered that name, but I, I, I to be fair, if, if we want to butcher anyone's name, it's the least amount of butchering that's probably happened in this man's life. Right, and it's like it's just it's created this weird like discourse about like Russophobia, uh, Sovietophobia, and like I don't I don't know how to describe this right, but it's like 
the weird bedfellows in the Zelensky coalition with like elements like Azov, but then how do you square that with like Putin? Well, it's kind of weird too because it's like I mean, like obviously, like the the Soviet Union in World War II was a weird bedfellows moment as well. Um, yeah, so then we end up with this guy. Maybe that's where the not to defend the confusion, but maybe that's where the confusion came in. Um, but yeah, I mean, it's embarrassing, right? Because I mean, it, like, what's like the main um. Like, other than the fact that, you know, the whole parliament gave a standing ovation to a Nazi. Um, yeah, that's the, yeah. you know, the big criticism people have had about, like, aid to Ukraine has been like, oh, well, we're like funding Nazis, which, I mean, to be fair, half the people bringing that up are like proud boys probably looking for, you know, their own, you know, war bucks. Um, you know, why can't we fund the Nazis at home? Uh, but, but um, you know, I, I think it's, it, yeah. And I mean, obviously, yeah, like, I mean, there, there's like the Azov battalion and whatnot, but it's it's sort of, you know, wartime kind of creates these sort of, you know, radical coalitions or coalitions with radicals and radicalized people. And I think there is definitely that that danger that's happening there. And, you know, to be fair on like, you know, that front, uh, I'm, I'm you know, totally supportive of the Azov battalion uh, going off to uh, die in a war like, you know, that's. That's an, a totally acceptable outcome to me personally. Um, but yeah, like there's the, the fact that there is sort of like these weird connections that, um, you know, th there's there's sort of, you know, questions about, you know, what does, you know, a, you know, post-war coalition look like and things like that. Um, Ex exactly. If there is that's... a post-war coalition, I guess. But And that's been the most troubling thing about this conflict, right? Is that like, American commentators and observers have been like very eager to make decisive and definitive takes from footage that we don't even know if we can verify from takes that are in a language most of us don't speak. Right. Um and we're just ingesting um like open source uh crowdfunded propaganda from either side basically. And you have people like I just call it's it's LARPing. It's LARPing for Ukraine. It's LARPing for Russia. I don't really think anyone understands any of the conditions leading up to this conflict. You know, I've I've heard t like better informed analyses of like to examine this, you got to start with like the the Afghanistan debacle, really. And that's well, and I, I think no the starting can... the starting point that you go back to is really kind of telling of like kind of where you end up kind of drawing your lines, right? Like a lot of um, the more pro-Russian takes, right? They they kind of their timeline starts and kind of stops at like 2014, right? With um, some American uh, intervention and stuff in the in the region there, and then Crimea, of course, uh, is the mm -hmm. direct result of that. Um, yeah, it always Whereas starts with other like, people. If you look further back, you can sort of see where a lot of these things have kind of come in, and um, you know, there, there, there's more complex like geopolitics at play than just you know straightforward answers uh, in a lot of cases. Yeah, like a lot of retellings will start at Maidan and end at Maidan, and I'm like, I that's that seems just terribly reductive. Yeah. Especially when 75% of the people in this discourse cannot point out Ukraine on a map. But, but yeah, just, I don't know. All in all, like, t 
to get to a point where you invite an SS volunteer as a guest of honor in your parliamentary session. Everybody salutes the guy. And it takes, like, internet sleuths to point out, like, the guy's actual service. And the fact that nobody, like, heard the line, he fought the Russians in World War II and didn't think, like, just critically for two yeah, seconds. Yeah, that, that immediately would kind of bat an eye. And I, I, there was, I talked about a little bit in my class. People were like, how did no one figure this out? I'm like, I have no idea. Um, maybe the most shocking thing, right, is that the, uh, the Speaker of their House of Commons resigned over this yeah. after inviting him, like... Resignations was practically unheard of stateside, um, but you know they they resigned over it. Uh, Poland has requested that he be extradited so they can try him for war crimes. Um, that I I thought was maybe the the, the highlight to come out of all of right. this. Like everyone is worse off from having this guy there, including the guy himself. Yeah, and just, I mean, again, just, like, everything I'm hearing out of Canada just seems, like, it, it, it seems a lot more insane than, like, political discourse and political conditions on the ground here in the United States. Like, even, like, rent, which is, like, a hot-button issue in the United States today, is probably just as bad, if not worse, in Canada, too. Like, I'm hearing, like, I don't, I don't have a lot of, like, facts and figures here for you, but, like, one of the craziest stories I heard is that the mayor of an Ontario city, like in the greater Toronto area, still lives with their parents because they can't even afford their own apartment, let alone their own home. So it's just, it, it's like, I, I can recall as far back as maybe like 2013 or so where like Canada got upheld by American liberals as this like nearby model society that's, progressive and inclusive and um you know like a model for u.s liberals and then as it as we really look at it um canada's i think a lot of that really just boiled down to cope right <laughs> like right. the idea that you could that there is like this paradise that's so close by that like we can escape from trump right everyone wants to move to canada right, uh, right. the minute you know things start turning south here and I, I think a lot of that was just coping with you know <laughs> just the horrors of the united states at the time and i mean that's still loom ever present but it's even crazier that like this happened under like liberal sweetheart trudeau that a lot of yeah. the canadian mythology has been like dissolved and raptured in our lifetime it would like just the horrifying discoveries of like indigenous children at like uh residential schools to like canada's uh flip-flopping on climate to these like weird nexuses of like international like right-wing movements setting up shop in canada um and even canada just has like an arms sales agent um that rivals the united states right like these these tales are coming out at a much greater pace in his tenure and you could argue that maybe media has gotten more sophisticated in our lifetimes on that but i think i don't know i'm i'm really shooting from the hip here with this segment well i, I think too i mean it's interesting because like i always think you know when he kind of first came onto the scene right there was always like he's like the canadian obama right yeah. Um, 
you know, even without the blackface, um, you know, he's, he's, he's I forgot about that. (laughs) He's done blackface, Indian face. What other, I I don't even want to know what he's done. (laughs) Yeah. Um, yeah, I figured I had to, you know, throw that little jab in, but, uh, you know, so it's like you have that, um, kind of, um, that backdrop, right. He was always sort of like the Canadian Obama. Right. And I think as we've sort of reconciled with Obama's legacy, it's like, okay, like maybe he really is the Canadian Obama, right? <laughs> like where it's, you know, not, you know, he was sort of this like, you know, liberal idol that, you know, in reality, not so, not so rosy. Yeah. I think, I think it mostly just kind of boils down to like the grass is always green on the other side, you know, where like, yeah. we're looking at our political landscape. It's not looking too great. We look up at Canada's, you know, look at everything through rose colored glasses. Um, in terms of like Trudeau specifically, I also wanted to just um, point out that right after Trudeau made his apology about um, the whole Nazi thing, they he immediately turned around and like complained about how Russia was like politicizing the issue, which I thought was just insane. Like I thought I legitimately thought that was like a crazy thing to say right after. Yeah, for sure. Like t- to that end, like I. I have two things. One is like, if you look at Canada as like a competing project to the United States, we kind of see that maybe the American Revolution was more of like window dressing for what was really a broader settler colonial project. And Canada is like how that would play out if the bourgeois didn't become independent. Maybe you could look at it that way. That's one historical reading of events. But then the other thing too is like, to really draw back, like, us really trying to avoid being epic geopolitics guys, you know? Um, the contours of the Russia-Ukraine discourse in the United States are so, like, toxic and limited. And so contingent on picking sides that, like, nobody, like, you know, really, if you look at it, like, I don't really like either of these guys involved. It it really prevents you from being able to have like the the nuance to be like okay we don't need to ha- to you know support nazis at any stage of history we don't need to make excuses for either the azov battalion or the fucking wagner group we don't have to choose yeah it is really weird that it's like one of those things where you can literally point at both sides for like the, the nazi argument specifically right right it's like not to be you know I'm not a Trotskyist, but like the neither Moscow nor Washington DC like line is is really ringing on this one, and it's like I I don't know it's like you look at Putin and it's like this guy's an oligarch he's actively suppressed uh, the left in Russia like this guy's no friend I wouldn't want to LARP as this guy, and then you look at Zelensky and it's like this guy is ready to sell out Ukraine for U.S. interests and doesn't even get any support for it. And we're supposed to congratulate him, you know what I mean? Like, there's nobody in this conflict who looks like a hero, but everyone is fucking suffering and dying. And that's what's getting downplayed in this since day one of this conflict. Everyone wants to be fucking right about this. And nobody is fucking looking at, like, the sheer monstrous cost of the fact that we get out of Afghanistan... And start a new forever war in Eastern Europe. 
what's to be done, I have no fucking idea. But, like, I just implore people to look at this critically. Yeah, I mean, it's it's one of those things where I, I think that on some level, you know, it, I I think what helps with this on, like, the, you know, perception front is it's sort of because we're we were so tainted and jaded with the war in the middle east like i think that a lot of people are just looking for a conflict where the u.s can sort of be the good guys in it right like even yeah. if we're not directly involved uh and like you know it's like yeah like i mean ukraine was invaded um things like that right they're not they're not the aggressors in this situation um you know i i think there, there's there may be some fault to be had with mm-hmm. you know what the ukrainian coalition looks like um but you know it, it's sort of this ugly situation where there's not there's not really ever going to be like a clear you know winner right like you know russia pulls out you know ukraine nominally wins the conflict but you know it's at the cost of you know tons of destruction and loss of human life and things like that um russia wins then you know all that death and destruction was for nothing and um all it really does is sort of empower the political stock of an of an oligarch in another country. Yep. Um, so it's you know, it, but you know, it's I, I think that that's kind of where like the, the spectatorism has really kind of become a problem. I think where it's just sort of you know, there's not you know, there's no like storybook and you know book end like victory of like oh this is what it looks like and it's you know this beautiful picture right. I mean you know you want to you want to have some optimism right that you know people mm-hmm. can you know, emerge from disaster, but it's not, you know, it's not a pretty image. And as I said, I think a lot of this just boils down to, um, I think people looking for a conflict where they can sort of see themselves as like the good guys again, helping the underdog, not, you know, being the ones to, you know, trample over them as we did, you know, in the Middle East, in, Af- in uh, uh, you know, Vietnam, all those other, you know, conflicts that have, you know, increasingly become less popular over time. Right. And maybe, you know, I mean, obviously there's sort of the uh, military industrial side of it, right? Where it's like, you know, this is sort of the one time they can sort of, you know, promote their in- industries without, you know, one, risking, you know, American lives in the process. Um, and also, you know, doing it for at least nominally a more uh, publicly supported cause than, you know, what we have been getting in, you know, Afghanistan and Iraq. I, I think that's spot on, and that's probably the most unfortunate reality of all of this. Yeah, I, I don't mean to be a downer, but like I, I think, you know, I do resent I, I do resent just how much of like a source of enter passive entertainment the Ukraine war has become for a certain class of like uh american political observer and i i maybe maybe i really don't have the words for it but it's that that whole line has just gotten lost in this i wish people were less obsessed with being right about this and just more nominally committed to simply being anti-war how we get to that point what we do if we get to that point ugh. I wouldn't even begin to know what to do. I mean, uh, the anti-war thing, it's kind of, it's, 
it's difficult to untangle that because like yeah you know, what does like i mean like if you're anti-war against like an invading army like what is that going to accomplish right that's like, also true yeah like you know what is that what does that mean um so you know it, it's kind of you know i don't think there's a ton of like leverage to really get out of that specific position right i mean i think you know it's sort of it, I, I think it kind of evokes this anti-imperialist thing and i think you know maybe the silver lining in terms of like you know the more domestic front right it's like maybe this kind of open a more critical lens of our own imperialist activities right that like mm-hmm. yes we acknowledge this is a really awful horrible thing that's happening in ukraine here are some other examples where we have done that maybe we should you know consider that in terms of like you know never again on that front as well or you know some of the current efforts you know to sort of suppress things on a global front try to correct course before it's too late yeah and you would think that like with the rise of multipolarity you could get alternate coalitions like involved in supplanting or suppressing the war but really i think with the united states's own sanctions and uh trade regime um multipolarity is basically turned into a game of who's going to get off the dollar first which which uh, go ahead yeah no i was i was kind of piggybacking off of that i think that's a kind of what it is at the end of the day that plus i feel like america just in general is very like war hungry like we do like conflict do like the quote-unquote entertainment like uh, picking a good side and a bad side and pretending like war is like an Avengers movie where everything is very clear-cut and obvious and we know who the bad guys are. Um, I feel like um, kind of that, that kind of spectator mode, like trying to figure out actual geopolitical issues is kind of the problem. Uh, I feel like we should kind of take a step back. Uh, I, like, I like what Josh mentioned about like recognizing imperialism and um, immediately trying to course correct as opposed to like sitting on the sidelines and kind of cheering them on and watching as one side accidentally salutes Nazis or, uh, you know, the other side, you know, tries to do imperialism and invade countries, things like that. I don't think there is a, a real like solution here aside from just take a step back, understand that, you know, you, you don't know what you don't know, but you also know that you don't know, you know, like you need to kind of take a step back and um, recognize what you can recognize and just I don't know. All I can say is the the collapse of the Soviet Union has been a mistake. <laughs> well, I mean, it was a uh, a pretty long. Uh, you know, you have to t- turn the time machine yeah. back pretty darn far to undo that mistake. Yeah, you don't. It doesn't. It doesn't. It's <laughs> that not, was a long fall. <laughs> yeah, you don't turn it back to Gorbachev. You got to turn it back to probably Yalta. Maybe you got to turn it back to like Lenin. <laughs> You gotta turn it back to maybe maybe FDR having that headache. I don't know. (laughs) It's yeah. On that note, I think we've covered everything on the outline today. (laughs) Um any any other thoughts from anybody before we started uh, doing our closeout and plugs? Um, I don't think, I think we hit all of the, I'm trying to think of anything else noteworthy happened. 
Oh uh, yeah, I think we kind of we were pretty comprehensive with uh, most of the stuff. Um, and some of it, you know, a little bit more lighthearted than others. Uh, and some of it, you know, kind of even like the heavy-handed stuff, where it has at least some elements that, uh, you know, maybe we are a little overly, you know, spectatory on some of it, but you know, yeah, there's the- there's, a, there's a there's some humor. I mean, uh, there's there were some solid memes for uh, the. Uh, Ukrainian Nazi salute, for instance. Um, probably the most on point one was that uh, the boys one with the uh, uh, smiling and you know being all like "Wow" and whatnot over you know getting saluted for playing a role in the Holocaust, which is pretty on point, as I said, for how that actually played out. Uh, I'm really curious to see if they actually do extradite him to Poland, though. That'll be interesting if they actually. Uh... <laughs> It is just darkly hilarious and terrifying all the same. Like, look at this freak. Like, observe this bloody, like, conflict that you could argue had its roots in events he was directly involved in in his past. And yeah. inst- and basically to stop himself from doing a full SS salute wipes the sweat off his brow. It's fucked up. That's all I can. Well, that's the thing is, it's like it, it's not even like his unit. Like, I mean, maybe he was motivated by Ukrainian independence or whatever, but his unit is primarily like, I mean, they they, they didn't for a war they, crimes unit. That's what they yeah, did. Yeah, like it wasn't like oh yeah, like they were doing stuff ostensibly to secure independence. Like no, they were just <laughs> committing war crimes for the Nazis. And that's yeah. That's also, really, oh, go ahead, go ahead. Yeah, I was just saying. I also like. I hate the way this was covered because like. Not a lot of, I feel like not a lot of media literally put the word Nazi or SS in the title. They're like, oh, this guy fought against the Russians during World War II, or this guy was a part of a nationalist uh, Ukraine unit, you know, as opposed to like saying what actually happened. You know, I didn't, I didn't see a ton of like network coverage of it, like after it had happened. I know that like, I had seen some headlines about like controversy, but again, I don't think those headlines said like, "Oh, hey, Ukrainian Parliament standing ovation for not- literal Nazi." I don't literal think I saw Nazi, that. yeah, <laughs> like which they, they probably should have. <laughs> yeah, I think it just it goes back to the fact that like the fucking. Um, it all it all goes back to World War II and post World War II, right? And how you paint the Russians in your retelling of those events. Oh, there, there we go. I did find a headline. There was uh, one was a uh, Canadian speaker uh, apologizes for praising veteran who fought for Nazis. <laughs> there we go. There we go. Finally, <laughs> finally, one good headline. It's like yeah, like how people um, speak about the Soviet Union and Russia more broadly, like, and it's historical. Um, iterations has a lot to say about their character than like it, you would initially expect, right? And I think like there's this, there is this bizarre like lens of like equating the Nazis to the Soviet Union, and it's like it's so, regardless of what you think of the Soviets, to equate them is like just just simply untrue. It's not even historically true, you know. Uh, they both had uh, socialism in their uh, their titles oh, and stuff, like and, and that's the thing is like then you have to like turn into a crank and explain like the Nazis took the term national socialism to finesse socialist voters into tr- and trick them into voting for them. They literally like 
and then killed socialists. Right. It's like there's a whole history at play here that's like complicated with heroes and villains alike and several gray characters in the middle. That is like far more interesting than the established narrative of World War II that's given to us. I mean, to be fair, you know, had, uh, you know, Nazi Germany not, you know, pushed the line further into Poland into uh, their territory, we could probably, you know, talk about them in the same breath as basically being the same, um, where they where they probably would have maintained a military alliance uh, together then. Yeah, sure. But like, that's not what happened. Um, and like, everyone knows that that history didn't happen. So exactly. Like, it, it is like this weird, you know, conflation of the two. That's, you know, largely, I mean, it's, it's, as you said, it's kind of informative about maybe their personal project over, you know, objective reality. And, and if anyone wants to call me a tanky, sure. I'm wearing a tank top right now. Um, <laughs> <laughs> like again, it's like the 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 Soviet Union. Well, oh, to be fair, like, we're not like saying like, oh, you know, actually, you know that uh, that USSR that they're the most based government uh, that, that ever existed or anything like that. Right. Um, <laughs> that's that's, that's such that's a reductive the tanky line. Yeah, that's a, that, then those guys are always reductive, right? But it's like you know, the Soviet Union had like the highest casualty of troops like fighting against the Nazis in that conflict. The overwhelming majority of Ukrainians fought in the Red Army during that conflict, right? I'm not saying that to to win petty points. I don't, you know, if I don't think Putin is this like based figure that American communists need to defend. If he really was, I think that's really weird. And I think, yeah, um, you know, I mean, that's kind of neither here nor there for current events maybe it's something that we delve more into in the future at some point but like the idea that like i i think the people who sort of draw that line uh linking to putin i think do more damage to the leftist movement than uh like almost anything else right just kind of like attaching ourselves to an authoritarian who is that far from the left just because like oh hey well like he he, he respects the geographic boundaries of a nominally leftist state at one point right right and it's like again i think that contingent of people is highly online very loud and very small but very wrong (laughs) yeah but the thing is is like if he was some kind of secret based leftist uh the russian communist party would still be in charge i'm sorry it would be self-evident if he was and that's yeah i don't know maybe we maybe after hours of like soul crushing research we could probably unpack how the russia ukraine war coverage got so fucked up that would be interesting yeah yeah because that's i i'm i'm kind of fascinated in how one um people always find a way to be wrong and also disgusting (laughs) about their like coverage of the events but also like just how like there's there's just like a a class of people who are interested in watching like gore out of like war scenes off of this and like basing worldviews off of this and like getting into like just weird like highly online sectarian and just misanthropic spaces in all of it it's 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 one of the weirdest things i've had the displeasure of observing online yeah i think there's this kind of generally that sort of lack of um 
both a lack of empathy, but also I, I think just like kind of it, it's it, I think it's demonstrated the lack of principles that some people's worldviews have um, sort of the way maybe not so much the fact that they do take sides, but like the the way they take sides. Right. Where, um, you know, I mean, I, I, I think <laughs> I mean, very clearly we're seeing sort of like, you know, a, a contingent of the American right, like latching itself onto Russia because at least Putin doesn't have like trans folks in the military or whatever. Oh um, God, that you know, like yeah. it, where it's just like it's it's you know very much like a weird reflection of our culture war, where it's like, well, at least you know we're we're gonna take the side of whichever government's the least woke. Um, which you'd think they could you know point to like oh Nazis on both sides and be like, hey, you know, there's there's room for, for us on either side of the conflict, but uh, <laughs> um, that is not than what's turned out so far right and it's a lot of the people in this uh in this space too like especially some people in the anti like russia right-wing space in the american republican party i remember when a lot of those guys were praising putin for being allegedly more masculine than obama remember what that was about oh and i remember um god like uh even like when we were in cl- like class in college, where there's just like people like, oh, well, like at least Putin knows how to keep his country safe, which uh, you know. What does that mean? That's, that's what, what does that, that mean? <laughs> I mean, that was like in that that whole like primary era, right? Where like you know, Jeb Bush unironically saying like that the country was more dangerous under Obama, and there was never a terrorist attack under his brother, despite you know the number one terrorist attack in the United States. There's no way he actually said that. Are you serious? Yeah, he would hundred percent said that there was never a terrorist attack when my brother was president. That's awesome. Maybe, yeah, I guess I looked at the exactly. He was talking. He was saying that he he kept us safe from terrorism, unlike Obama, despite you know. 9-11 literally happened right. and that being the, the, the entire impetus for like all every right wing talking point for the past 20 years maybe he was trying to justify like the wars and things that happened after 9-11 like i don't i don't know why you would even say that that's crazy yeah i mean it, it, it was just i mean it, it's weird like 2016 wasn't that long ago but it feels like an eternity ago and just the way like the culture space has I, I would say devolved more than evolved. Um, so rapidly. But, so but fucking like, rapidly. Where it's just like, but like, so much of that primary was about like, just like, you know, like we're like their emphasis on Joe Biden is that he's like hiding in the basement, despite the fact that he's also on the uh, picket line and he's the devil for doing that. Um, but like for, for Obama, it was just, he's like, he's a pussy. He's, he's, he, you know, he's the reason ISIS exists. Uh, ISIS has, um, I mean, like, what, I, I don't even remember what the most, like, deadly terrorist attacks were domestically under the, uh, Obama years, right? But, I mean, it's, it, they're, they're dwarfed by just, you know, the number of mass shootings and things like that. Right. Um, we did forget that point, right, that, uh, Mike Pence is gonna stop those by executing the shooters. Um. What? Yeah, he said that yeah, That was another crazy thing in the debate. Yeah. Oh my god. He, if they we're going to institute uh, a federal, you know, capital punishment uh, rule for mass shooters who statistically are more likely to kill themselves or be killed during the shooting than Yeah. <laughs> but the fear of death will surely stop them. Yeah, Univision was really hitting some hard-hitting questions on that one. I have to say, that was crazy. Yeah, I mean, did they 
make them answer them? No. But they did try they did try to like nail them on some questions. Yeah. Yeah, the mass shooter thing is terrifying. It's like if if you didn't fear death, that would just make you kind of commit harder, right? Yeah, you would think, right? Like if if, you know, just like, well, crap, like, I'm gonna get executed, might as well, like, try to take, like, ten more people with me or something like right. that. Like, yeah, I, I mean, it's, and he just said it so matter-of-factly, and, like, this this would this would solve the crisis. Um, it's, I mean, he's delusional for, you know, more reasons than I think, you know, there are numbers to count. Uh, but that was just, like, one of them where it was just, like, how does this guy, like, just come to any conclusion that he has come to. I think I think that really does define the era, right? Where it's like terrors are limitless and all the people who should be in charge of the levers of power are asleep at the wheel or just like so nonsensically like unaware of who they are and what they're doing. It it may it makes one just feel like yeah abject terror alienation and confusion all the same. Yeah, like it's. I mean, I you know I don't know how much of it. It's like our our leaders just feel so, especially on that side, just feel so like divorced from not not only just reality, but just like from like okay, like these are. These are the issues voters are talking about. But these are the issues we want to talk about, and they're totally different. Um, and and you could tell that from like the way the questions were. Right, a lot of the questions were pretty good, hard hitting questions, and most of them pivoted to immigration. Um, almost all of them, at least at one point, pivoted to immigration as like the number one issue in this country. And I mean, it's it's weird because like outside of the context of these debates, I don't think I've heard like anyone really talk about immigration being like a super super serious problem i i think like yeah there's this there is this sense that like even though trump's not in the room they're always trying to temper their responses as if he would be or like they have to contend with the reality that is trump I mean, I but think again, it's because, like, they know he's watching, right? Like, right, there's no right. way, you know, there's no way he's not going to turn the TV off. Or... And they're also competing for his base. But, like, again, it's, like, until Trump comes on stage. Well, to be fair, last night we do know that he was busy when this was being aired. Right. <laughs> and I guess the the the, pre- the first one, too, because you had the Tucker uh, interview. Did it happen at the same time? Yeah. Uh-huh. Counter-programming on uh, Twitter. <laughs> Again, until he comes on stage, we're really not going to see, like, any of these guys drop off. I think the minute you get Trump back on the debate stage, two-thirds of the candidates are cleared. Trust me. Yeah, I'm surprised, like, because there's a a huge number of um, candidates up there still who are, or, like, people who aren't even up there. Uh, Asa Hutchinson was on the first debate, wasn't on this one. Instead, posted a uh, AI portal to uh, ask Asa. Um, I had fun with that one. I asked him if we should hang Mike Pence. 
Um, and he said we should seek less divisive solutions um, <laughs> to today's problems. Um, which, you know, fair enough. Um, but, uh, yeah, I mean, to me, I was like, I wasn't sure if that was, like, incredibly self-aware that, like, an AI is, like, the best approximation of whatever's going on inside his head anyways or just incredibly embarrassing that he's just like oh yeah this seems like hip and happening and let's just let's do it and you know get be purely used for memes here's a question are you guys surprised that trump made an appearance on the debate yet i don't because in, like, like, in my super- head yeah, because I'm just saying, in my head, I feel like like Trump does really well on, or you know, like like when he's at a debate or when he's like sitting around people who agree with him, Trump can pull off like this, dare I say, charming, funny kind of banter. I'm I'm very surprised he hasn't like. Yeah, yeah, it's like I'm like I'm I'm a little surprised that he hasn't because like I I agree with you. I think he he actually performs. Um, decently there and I, I think you know at least would be the more the loudest and more interesting voice in the room I can't see anyone like interrupting him the way they do with like Vivek or each other um it's in part because that would just be political suicide for him right but it is um I'm more so disappointed not not in a like oh darn it Trump you should you should go there you know eat your you know eat your vitamins and all that but like just I, I think that would make for far more entertaining content if he was actually there. Oh, um, no, yeah, I totally agree. Yeah. Um, all right, so I found, yeah, there's, for all these candidates, there's a bunch of candidates who've never even been on the debate stage. You've got Ryan Binky, um, what an awful, or Binkley, um, Larry Elder, <laughs> uh, Will Hurd, Perry Johnson, Michigan's own, um, former, <laughs> man, reading his, uh, page because it's like on wikipedia it's got the little description for like what they are for perry johnson founder of perry johnson registrars inc and disqualified candidate for governor of michigan at 2022 oh whoa why'd he get disqualified <laughs> like what a claim to fame right <laughs> uh but yeah so the, those guys they're still in the race there's a uh what was it the a draft yunkin push uh from donors and some other voters to like try to get him in on the primary um if he's like remotely intelligent he will not do that um but who knows it's definitely a spectacle i don't know if it's entertaining but it is one that is like a multi-car pileup. Yeah. I cannot take my eyes off it. No, next debate's November 8th. November 8th? What day is that? I think we might be able to prep a stream for that one. Wednesday night. Friday. November 8th. November 8th is a Wednesday. Is it? Did I look at the wrong one? Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. It is. That makes more sense. I was looking at uh, December 8th. Whoops. That's one. Yeah, so all these have been on a Wednesday. Appropriate, right? Feels like you've really gotten through the week at that point. <laughs> <laughs> all right. I think we've been at this for about two hours now. Um, Josh, John, is there anything you guys want to plug? 
Uh, support your local union. Yeah, well, I'll, I'll, I'll echo that. Yeah, support your local union. Uh, head to the picket if you if, if you have the time. Uh, or you know, help them with. Uh, I, I guess we have, we have some links from last episode, right? We can probably uh do those again, right? Yeah, yeah, I can plug everyone's social media links in the uh, show notes in the description. Perfect. All right, everybody, you have learned why we don't talk geopolitics on this show. Thanks again for tuning in. I will see everybody on the TL. If not, talk to you all later. Take care.